Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's journey, we're going to venture back on down to Hillsdale County. And we're going to explore some of the history of Litchfield, Michigan. Now, Litchfield is a small village community that was first settled in 1834. And it's had some very interesting history, as well as some very interesting events that have happened in that village. So I'm going to go into some of that history today. So come along and join me. Now, Litchfield is a city in Hillsdale County, as I mentioned before. The population is just under 1,400 people as per the 2020 census. And it's surrounded by Litchfield Township. The area was first settled by Samuel Riblet and Henry Stevens in 1834. However, in 1836, the town was not yet platted. By, and it wasn't planted by those two men. Instead, the task was eventually handled by Hervey and David Smith, and they proceeded to name the town Smithville after themselves. In February 1837, a post office was established and began operations, and they named the town Columbus. But a few months later, it was renamed Litchfield after Litchfield, Connecticut, where some of the original settlers had journeyed from. Now, the story behind the name of Litchfield has another anecdote about it. It's said that Henry Stevens, who was described as a turbulent man, he actually was the one that desired to name the town Litchfield, uh, because apparently that was where he was originally from. And he took it into his own hands when the name of the village was going to be chosen. He headed over to Detroit, where the legislature was in session. Back in that time, the state capital was in Detroit. And so he went there, and it is described that with a free use of liquid and other arguments, prevailed on the legislature to adopt the name of Litchfield when they officially gave the village its name when it became a chartered village. And so I guess he gave them a little bit of booze and put a little friendly persuasion on the legislative body that was in Detroit and was successful in having the village named Litchfield. Now, Litchfield also later became a railway stop along the South Shore and Michigan Southern Railroad, which added a little bit of prosperity to the village. Now, a tragic event happened in 1894, where Litchfield's downtown business block was devastated by a fire. In fact, a majority of the downtown business block burned down to the ground in less than an hour. And there's one article that came out on March 30th, 1894, in the Clare Sentinel, and it described it as this, the fire on the Bunday block Litchfield was destroyed. Loss of the buildings was $5,000 and no insurance. 10 business firms were turned into the streets. And that was what that article said. I did a little bit more research on it and I found this other article that offered a lot more detail about it. And it was published in the Hillsdale Standard on March 27th, 1894. 
And the article is entitled, A Bad Fire, Litchfield Village Loses a Whole Block of Business Places. Fire broke out in the south part of the row of wooden buildings known as the Bundy Block in Litchfield last Saturday morning, about 4 o'clock. And the entire row was destroyed. Loss of the buildings was about $5,000 and no insurance. Ten business firms were turned out into the street. Their losses upon goods burned and insured is considerable and with but small insurance. So the article was a little deceiving because some of the business owners did have some insurance. And it describes further that the owners of the building, A.J. Lovejoy and the Bundy Heirs, were the owners. And then the individual losses... Uh, S. Riblet and Company had a $700 loss, and they had an insurance policy of $300 to cover it. W.A. Sherwood had a $500 loss and had an insurance policy of $200. And S. Fowler had $2,000 in loss and no insurance. There was also the Cyclone, a local newspaper, which was a total loss in the fire, and they had no insurance. The Sanderson's Meat Market, which had a nominal loss, and then the E. Bulger Groceries saved part of their stock, and they had no insurance. And another business, H. Jennings, which was a barber shop, his outfit nearly saved everything, and he had no insurance. And then Sam Clay, which was a repair shop, had a small loss, and then a harness shop by the name of Moan and Allen saved most of their goods, and they were insured for about $400. And then E.E. E. Garney, which was another barber shop, had a loss of about $40 and had no insurance. And finally, there was a man by the name of N. Russell who had a shoe shop, and he lost one half of his business, and he had no insurance. Now, during the excitement of the fire, a very queer thing happened, as they described in this article. And that was when a Mr. Dings, who had moved into rooms over Fowler's Boot and Shoe Store a few days before the fire, and he was not a very strong and healthy man. However, he carried, without assistance, a large, heavy organ down the stairs to a place of safety that required the muscle of four men to take upstairs. So that was like a very small piano, but it was an organ. So that's an interesting story. I guess he was very motivated to save that organ. And the origin of the fire, according to this article, was a mystery. It's thought to have started near the jewelry store under a sidewalk. A lot of times the sidewalks during those days were made of wood, and it could have been that something below that caught fire. And it mentions in the article, finally, that some of the buildings had stood there for 58 years, some of them having been erected as early as 1836. And that was the Hillsdale Standards account of it in March of 1894. Another interesting event that happened in Litchfield happened about 10 years later in November of 1904. And this is when thieves used explosives to blow up the bank safe about 2.20 a.m. in the morning. 
And there was an article in a local newspaper called the Gazette, which read, before the robbers left the bank, at least 25 people knew the bank was being robbed. And of this number, at least five had guns in their possession. And yet the marauders escaped without a shot being fired. And that was the extent of that article. However, I did a little more research on that, trying to find out if there was a larger story or larger article written on that incident of the bank robbery. Because I'd first heard about this bank robbery when I was researching the Crouch murders over in Jackson. And it was brought up in the trial transcripts by the defense in that case, trying to state that the ones who committed that murder were likely the ones that had committed a bank robbery down in the Litchfield area. And so it was right around that same time. And so that was how I first heard about, oh, a bank robbery. And it's kind of interesting that I came across this when I was researching the village. And this one was published in the Sault Ste. Marie Evening News on November 18, 1904. And the headline on the article is, Robbed Another Bank. Cracksmen use nitroglycerin in Litchfield Bank. Failed to open the strong box, but got away with $100 in coin. Neighbors were aroused. Litchfield, Michigan, November 18th. Robbers entered the Citizens Bank at this place last night. While trying to force the front door of the bank, they aroused F.H. Ginnell, who telephoned the president of the bank and also notified the marshal. After exploding three charges of nitroglycerin, the robbers were obliged to abandon the job of forcing the inter-strong chest. While in the midst of the robbery, President Lovejoy stuck his head around the corner of the block and exclaimed, Ah, there, to the men outside the bank. Half a dozen shots with the command to stand back caused him to retire. After failing to get the steel chest open, the robbers left town and headed south. The loss to the bank will be less than $100 in silver coin. The safe and the building were badly wrecked. I can imagine lighting off uh, three charges of nitroglycerin will do that to anybody's uh, building, especially if it's made of wood. Now, as I recall, when I first came across this story, there was a chain of robberies, and I believe they also hit a bank in Jonesville. Uh, if I can find more information about this whole chain of robberies, I may do an entire separate episode on that. Um, because it's kind of an interesting little uh, topic unto itself. But that happened in Litchfield, and that's just one of the stories on the timeline. Now, the village of Litchfield has the Litchfield Area Historical Society, and they provided a lot of interesting information to the Hillsdale Historical Society, where I found a great article on the history of Hillsdale. And at one time, there was a Litchfield Butter and Cheese Company, that was started in a building in Litchfield in 1893. And by 1910, it became known as the Litchfield Dairy Association and continued operations in that location until about 1923. At that time in 1923, a new creamery building was located on South Chicago Street in the downtown area of Litchfield. And it went into operation on December of that year. The 
two large churns had a capacity combined to produce 2,600 pounds of butter, which is quite a bit of butter. And it had the potential for making five tons of butter during a 10-hour day. So that is a lot of butter being churned out. That could fill a lot of refrigerators, I would imagine. There was also a granary mill built in 1880 by Frederick W. Stock, who came from Hillsdale. And the mill remained in operation for a number of years as the Litchfield Grain Company. And according to the Hillsdale Historical Society, in this article, the mill is still in operation today. And one of the early pioneers in the auto industry was William Simpson, and he had a storefront in Litchfield that has some great photos here in the Hillsdale Historical Society article on Litchfield. And I'm not sure if he actually manufactured automobiles at his place or he was just selling some automobile products. The nearby village of Jonesville actually had a for a very short time a manufacturing of a horseless carriage type vehicle during the early automotive pioneer part of that industry. An early school in that area was the Sand Creek School which opened in the fall of 1866 with Phoebe Aldrich as the first teacher and it was moved in March of 1989 to its present location on Mill Street and serves as the headquarters today of the Litchfield Area Historical Society and Museum. Another school was built in 1889, and that was the three-story brick building that became Litchfield High School. And it was built at a cost of $12,000 at that time to the school district. It served as a place of instruction until about 1970 when it was demolished in preparations for another building to be built adjacent to it. And in terms of some of the religious buildings in town, the first business meeting of the Congregational Church was held in 1839, and its first church was built in 1841. The building was finished in 1872, and it served the membership quite well. The Methodist Church was dedicated in 1866 with Reverend John Clubine as pastor. The structure was remodeled several times and served well as a house of worship until March of 1974, and that building was raised in preparation for a new brick church building around that time. And there was also the Baptist Church in town, which was built in May of 1912 by the businessmen of Litchfield when they joined together to move 80 tons of field stone for the construction of this new Baptist church. Overall, nearly 300 loads of field stone were brought in to build this building, and the First Baptist Church was dedicated in April of 1913, and it's a beautiful field stone building the stone used for its construction was provided from several stone bees sponsored by the local farmers and businessmen. Now, I tried to find what they were referring to here as stone bees, 
And the only reference I was able to locate was that there was a type of wall that was built where they would leave a bee hole in it. And they were called bee bowls, B-O-L-E-S. And these were made of small stones and they would leave a hole in the walls for bees. I'm assuming that's what they're referring to because all of the stone appears to have been field stone that may have been used in walls around the uh, farms. As they plowed fields, they would throw the stone as they found in the field, and they'd build these walls around the edge of the field every time they would plow. And you'll see this throughout New England a lot, where you drive in the countryside and you see these wonderful little stone walls everywhere, where that was the tradition of what they did with the stones, is they would build a wall often to mark the barrier to an edge of a property or something like that. So that's what I believe they were referring to when they see um, stone bees. And they were probably referring to the walls that were built from these field stone walls off of their farms. But if somebody out in the audience has another definition for that, please message me and I will update you later on that. Another fascinating story is the one of the bell in the park. Now, there is a memorial to a woman by the name of Rose Hartwick Thorpe, and she was the author of a very popular poem that she wrote in 1867. And the poem was a narrative poem, and it was called Curfew Must Not Ring Tonight. And it was written in 1867. The poem is set in the 17th century. And it was written when she was just 16 years old, and it was first published in the Detroit Commercial Advisor. And the poem consists of 10 stanzas of six lines each. And the story of the poem involves a girl named Bessie, whose lover, Basil Underwood, has been arrested and thrown in prison by the Puritans. And he was sentenced to die that night when the curfew bell rings. And knowing that Oliver Cromwell, who was, this is set in England, and Cromwell was the English statesman and politician, and he had been a senior commander in Parliament during the 17th century. Bessie knows that Oliver Cromwell will be late in arriving that evening, and she begs the old sexton, who's the one who's in charge of the bell, uh, usually connected with a cemetery, to prevent the bell from ringing. And that bell was called a curfew bell. In those days, they would have a bell not always in the tower of a church or something like that. Sometimes the bell was on like a big tripod in a particular area of the village, and it was rung in the evening at curfew. Now, a curfew bell was rung to tell everybody in medieval England that that was a signal to be in your home for the evening. So she knew that Oliver Cromwell was coming to the village, and in this poem she tells him to ask the sexton to prevent the bell from ringing, and he refuses to do so. And so after she's done begging him and he, he refuses to, she eventually climbs to the top of the bell tower and heroically risks her life by manually stopping the bell from ringing. 
And then when Cromwell hears of her deed, when he arrives, he's so moved that he issues a pardon for Basil Underwood. And that's the gist of the poem. And that poem was called Curfew Must Not Ring Tonight. Now, the poem exploits the love and heroism of a woman. And you have to remember that this was in the Victorian era, where women had a lesser role in society. So this became very popular with women during this period of time. And it kind of paralleled with the suffrage movement and added a lot of um, inspiration to women during this time period. In fact, the author Lucy Maud Montgomery, who wrote Anne of Green Gables in 1908, which is set on Prince Edward Island, had one of the characters, Prissy Andrews, recite the poem in the story. And when the silent movies came out, there were three different silent films made that were based on the poem. So in literary circles, this poem really resonated both with American audiences as well as English audiences. And so in the 19th century, when this was written, it found its way into popular culture, and Thorpe's poem became a favorite of Queen Victoria. And it was a very popular poem during its day, and it was uh, even made into plays and other things. And it's been cited periodically even in Hollywood I believe there was a film with Catherine Hepburn where her character was referencing this poem in it and so the poem eventually faded into obscurity but it did have a lot of traction during its time when it was written so Rose Hartwick Thorpe was originally born in Indiana and then in her early years her family moved to Hillsdale County, and she lived in Litchfield, and she attended Litchfield High School and completing her education there. So the village of Litchfield set up this bell in the park as a memorial to Rose Hartwick Thorpe, and the bell was dedicated in 1934 during Litchfield's centennial celebration. Another interesting story that shows up in the Litchfield Area Historical Society photos is a photo of a building in the downtown area, which was called the Kennebrook Building. And the morning after Halloween, there is a car on the roof of the building. And apparently, some boys in the middle of the night, local pranksters, put the car on the roof. And the city fathers took them three days to figure out how to get the automobile back down to solid ground. And so that's kind of an interesting throwback to the days of Halloween during that time period in history, the 1800s. And I've done a whole episode on that in the past. And I'll probably do something like that again this coming Halloween, find some more stories for you. But apparently the night of Halloween was a big night for pranking. And they would go to extremes to do things like that. Uh, I've never seen a photo of a car on a roof before, but I did come across a lot of other stories about Halloween pranks where they would uh, move people's outhouses or destroy their outhouses and things like that. And uh, uh, one case in Battle Creek where they actually tore down an old building in the middle of the night. A lot of crazy stunts like that. Sometimes they would balance a wagon on top of uh, a post 
and frequently they would run around and change signs on buildings in the middle of the night so that people got up the next morning and you know a, a beer sign was in front of the dress shop and a dress shop sign was in front of the beer or pub or something like that and that was the nature of the pranks but this one was where two pranksters in the middle of the night actually put the car up there and there's a reference to the photo that says according to chuck Lindsay, two of the rapscallions who put the car on the building were his dad merritt Lindsay, and another man by the name of merrill swope so that sounds like a fun evening out and another story about litchfield was about another famous woman that came from that village and that was Miriam babcock baxter and she was an american lecturer and author and at about 20 years of age she delivered her first public address in jonesville michigan it attracted a wide and favorable attention and it pretty much set her future as a as a lecturer as her vocation and so she began to speak to larger and larger audience on the subject of temperance and women's suffrage. And generally, her theme was somewhat political in nature, and, was, and she was active in a lot of political societies of the day. She was born in 1850, and she died in 1910. She served as the president of Wayside Mission Hospital and located on the good ship Idaho, a side wheel steamer that was built in 1860 for the um, Columbia River as a business. It was Seattle, Washington's first hospital ship. So she served as the president of the mission hospital that was located on that ship during that time period. And she also wrote poetry as well as articles for various newspapers. And she was uh, known for her work as an editorial writer as well. And she was born on a farm in Litchfield, Michigan. Another man that was connected with Litchfield was John Caldwell, who served as a Michigan representative. He had moved with his family in 1856 when he was a young boy to the Litchfield Township area in Hillsdale County, Michigan. And as a teenager, he began working in the woods as a lumberjack and then he also was employed by the Mitchell Brothers Company buying and selling timberlands. Caldwell was later elected in 1897 to the Michigan House of Representatives representing Wexford County, Missaukee County as well as Clare County and he served two years in the legislature. Another man who went on to become a state representative was Solomon Robert Dresser, and he was born in Litchfield, and he attended the common schools in the county and also Hillsdale College, and he pursued agricultural knowledge, and he became an inventor of oil and gas and well equipment and um, moved to Pennsylvania in 1872. During the Pennsylvania oil rush, when it was closing out and nearing its end, and he was interested in the production of oil and gas in that state. And he went on to be elected to the U.S. House of Representatives from Pennsylvania's 21st District. Another famous woman was Helen M. Gugar, and she was originally born Helen Marr Jackson in 1843 in Hillsdale County, and she was raised in Litchfield, Michigan. 
and she went to Hillsdale College. And then in 1860, she moved to Lafayette, Indiana, with her brothers and three uncles. And she worked as a teacher in Lafayette Public Schools and became a school principal in 1863. And then in 1863, she married John Gouger, a Lafayette attorney, and became his legal apprentice. Then she went on to become an attorney herself, and she worked as well as a newspaper journalist, in addition to being a lawyer, and was very involved with the temperance and women's suffrage movement. And she was admitted to the Tippecanoe County, Indiana Bar, in 1895, and she was among the first woman lawyers in the county. And then in 1897, she became the first woman to argue a case before the Indiana Supreme Court. And she attained public notoriety for arguing a case on her own behalf for her right to vote in the 1894 elections. And in in addition to her advocacy work, She became a public speaker and frequently campaigned to elect politicians who shared her views on women's suffrage and prohibition. And she later became the president of the Indiana Women's Suffrage Association. There's an Indiana historical marker that was dedicated in 2014 honoring her in her efforts to secure voting rights for women. So she's quite an amazing woman, and she was raised in the Litchfield Michigan area. There was another man by the name of William Heinbaugh that spent some time in Litchfield. He went to high school there. He was born in Marshall, Michigan, and he later went on to become a representative in Illinois to the U.S. House of Representatives uh, later in life. So those are some of the famous people that I was able to find that came from Litchfield, Michigan, or had spent some time there growing up. And it's a fascinating community. I have not been down into that area of Hillsdale County in several years now, but I always admired the downtown business district of Litchfield. Uh, It's got some great old buildings. Obviously, they don't date back to the wooden ones. They were built in brick after that fire. Like a lot of communities, I think they did build into the brick buildings to make them more sound when they had fires that burned down the original structures. And there was some some of that that happened in Battle Creek, and there's been some of that that happened over the years in a lot of the small towns and villages around southwest Michigan. So I hope you enjoyed today's journey going through some of the history of Litchfield, Michigan. And as always, if you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to leave a review or rating on whatever app that you are listening on. And consider checking out and signing up for a subscription to this podcast if you're listening on Spotify. I will be including some additional episodes for subscribers only in the coming weeks. And I will probably be producing about one or two extra episodes a month for subscribers only, which will cover stories about Michigan history outside of Southwest Michigan, as well as perhaps some longer episodes on other subjects. So be certain to check that out. It's only a dollar per month, and all of that extra funds helps me offset the cost of producing the podcast. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can always find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. 
And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening. 